0: on our behalf. You are so, so good to us. And Lord, our only response can be praise to you. You receive the glory and honor and praise for all the works that are done. Hear it from our hearts. Let it not be lip service to you, but let it be heart praise to you, Lord. Lord, we pray for the opening of hearts as John comes and preaches the word of God to us. Lord, unveil the mysteries of your will to us. Let there not be any barriers between us and your word, but let there be penetrating words. Soul saving words. Truth. Ultimately, Father, be praised this morning as your church has gathered to worship you. And it's in the mighty name, the only name that saves, the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. (laughs) Thank you, church. You may be seated.
1: I don't remember which car it was. It probably wasn't that because it didn't last very long. Uh, I was driving home from work and it was a terrible, terrible rainstorm, thunderstorm. And I pull in the driveway and I get out of the car. And as I'm walking to the house, boom, a huge explosion happened. Well, I hightailed it in the house. I couldn't wait to get in there. I didn't know what happened. After the storm was done, I went out and I saw tree bark blown across our property and I looked and right next to the driveway where I had pulled in with the car was a tree that lightning had come down and just put a scar right in the tree top to bottom and uh, I, I just at that moment I had this sense of thanking the Lord remembering his great work that he would do that I was right there and that that lightning came and hit the tree, and as the tree grew, the bark kinda, kinda grew around the scar, but the scar remained there, and for years afterwards, every time I went out, I saw that scar, and it caused me to remember the great thing that God had done for me, and in general, to remember the great things. Today, we are going to look at 1 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and as you're turning there, I just wanna say what we're looking at here is Saul's first victory as king, and then his coronation uh, ceremony that takes place. So we're gonna pray now, and then we're gonna hear the word preached. Lord, uh, may this be your word today, as you have worked on me this week, help me to speak and help this body and the people that are watching online to hear what you want them to hear not what they want to hear, not what I want them to hear, but what you want. Lord, speak now, we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So the chapter, it's a long chapter here, so we're not gonna read the whole thing, so let me just start you out with a little bit of background. King Nahash, who was king of the Ammonites, enemies of Israel, came and attacked the little city of Jabesh-Gilead, and he laid siege around the city so they were completely trapped. The people of Jabesh-Gilead had nothing to defend themselves with. And so, as a last result, they just said to King Nahash, we will surrender and we promise to be your servants. And he said, no way, not unless you do one thing for me. All right, what do you want us to do? I get to to pluck out the the right eye of every one of your citizens. Can you imagine? pluck out the right eye of every one of the citizens. What that would do would mean they can still be servants, but they could never defend themselves again. Well, the people of Jabesh Gilead called out to the tribes of Israel, but they weren't hopeful. There had been bad blood between them and the rest of Israel, and they didn't think anybody would come to their rescue. So the word went out through Israel And when King Saul, remember he was anointed and he was recognized as king, but he still really wasn't doing his thing. He was actually out in the fields with some oxen. When he got word of what was going to happen to the Jabesh Gileadites, the spirit of the Lord came upon him, it says in verse six, and he became angry with the spirit of the Lord and he called all of Israel to come and defend the little city of Jabesh Gilead. And so we pick up in verse 11. The next morning, Saul put the people into three companies and they came into the midst of the camp at at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Victory! What a great victory, this was Saul's first attempt at leading the nation of Israel, and he led them to victory, what a great thing. And it not only was a victory because he saved the people of Jabesh Gilead, but as a victory because he worked in consort with the Lord. He worked in obedience to the Holy Spirit and by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't do this on his own. He went by the guidance of the Holy Spirit out to to have a victory against the Ammonites and that's what he did. And it was another victory too because he unified the nation of Israel. Up until this point, Israel had been 12 tribes sort of loosely connected. But here was a call for all 12 tribes to come together, battle together, and rescue this helpless people in a hopeless situation. Saul was their savior. He saved them that day. Well, what happens then in verse 12, the people said to Samuel, who is he that said, shall Saul reign over us? bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. So you remember probably back at at the time when he was announced to be king and he was hiding over in the baggage because he was too cowardly and too shy to come out. He was announced as king and some of the people at that point said, shall Saul be king over us? What's he gonna do being king over us? Well, after this victory, Saul's fan club is like, bring him out here, we'll kill him, we'll get rid of him. And Saul says, no, no. No one shall die this day because the Lord has accomplished deliverance. What a godly response from Saul. No one shall die today because the Lord has accomplished deliverance. You see what Saul did here as king was he acknowledged that God was really king. God fought the battle, it was the Lord who accomplished the deliverance, not Saul. He was acting as God's representative among the Israelites. God was actually doing the work, and Saul was the vehicle that he was doing it through. So as the king, he was bringing God's rule to the Jewish people. And he also showed mercy to his detractors. What a, what a humble thing to do. You know, if, if I were Saul, I might have said, yeah, bring him out here, let's kill them all. I only want my fan club, I'm the king. But Saul didn't do that. Saul in hum- humility said, no, 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 nobody's gonna die here, this is the Lord's victory. It's his, to his honor and credit. So in Saul's first act as king, he passes two tests. First, the royalty test. What is the king? What is the king? The royalty test. Saul knew that he had been anointed as king of Israel and that he represents God's rule on earth. He must know God, he must know God's word, he must rule as God ruled, directed by the Holy Spirit and he must save and protect the people of God. He knew that's what should happen, and he did it. This victory of Saul was a great victory because of all those reasons. And he also passed the pride test, a second test, the pride test. You know, at this point, Saul put aside his pride, he put aside his insecurity, and he put aside his desire for vengeance. All three of those things are gonna trip him up majorly just in the next chapter. But at this point he was able to put them aside and act in humility. The chapter ends with the coronation of Saul. Samuel comes out and says come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. So this may be a little confusing because in chapter nine, we had Saul anointed as king. In chapter 10, we have Saul being recognized as king and that's when he was hiding over in the baggage and too shy and cowardly to come out. And then in chapter 11 here, we have his coronation as king. So that may be a little confusing, but just so you know, it's really, we've, we've lived with that. In fact, just recently, Queen Elizabeth, as you know, died. She reigned in Israel for 70 years, the second longest monarchy in all of history. She, just, she was shy by two years to Louis XIV. He, he ruled for 72 years. Well, she died back in uh, in September. The moment she died, Prince Charles became King Charles. But then it was three days later that he was recognized and proclaimed to be King of England. Interestingly, at this ceremony, there were some detractors as well, and they were arrested. He didn't have as much mercy as Saul had on them. They were arrested. And then coming up on May 6th is the coronation of King Charles where he will be crowned king of Egypt and crowned head of the Church of England and he will also be anointed. So we see the same thing, this sort of three-step procedure to become king. So back to the Bible, the end of 11 is the coronation of King Saul but chapter 12 is the actual words, what took place. It's the record of what was said at his coronation. Before we go to chapter 12, I think it's important that we we just spend a little time here doing something. We have tried hard since we started preaching in 1 Samuel to tie this book to all of biblical history because each book in the Bible points to one thing and that's to Jesus Christ. And it's all a part of one long history. It's not just a collection of random writings, okay? The Bible is a long history about God's work among people. And so today I'd like to kind of go through that again but following a specific theme and that is the theme of kingship that God is king. And we're gonna start way back, way back here at the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things, seen and unseen, visible and invisible. And as their creator, God was the king of everything. He ruled over everything. But he shared that rulership with his creation of man. When he created man, he gave Adam and Eve authority to rule over the earth, over that part of creation. So Adam and Eve were representing God as king. God is king, they are representing him in their rule over the earth. And as their king, he was merciful, he reigned in in beauty and in love and in perfect harmony with them. But it wasn't long before Adam and Eve rebelled against God and declared their autonomy. In his kindness, even though they they rebelled against God, in his kindness, God still allowed them to continue their rulership. So what happened here was Adam and Eve were saying, we don't want your rule anymore. We wanna rule ourselves. We want to be king, not you. And so we're not gonna follow God, but God said, He's still king and he's going to still allow Adam and Eve to govern the earth, to rule as king over the earth. Well, even after the flood, uh, God gives them, uh, God reestablishes the authority of humankind as authority over the, the earth. Not long after that, humankind rebels at Babel. And this is a declaration, a complete declaration of separation from God's rule. God had ordered man to go and subdue the earth and to spread through the earth. Well, man decided, no, nope, we're not listening. He's not king. We'll do our own thing. They gathered together in one place and in, in their own society decided to become God themselves. And in doing that, they emancipated themselves from God's rulership. From this point on, God separated Man, so they would actually have to do what he said, which is to spread over the earth and form nations. And each nation would have its own king. Still, God is king over all, but each nation would have his own king. And from this point, we understand that every human government that is without God is a rejection of God's rule. All right, so so from, from the time Babel came At that point, all these nations that are ruling without God, it is government without God's rule. God continues to be good, continues to be merciful, and he chooses a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham will be his representative on the earth. Listen to what it says here in Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, which simply means father. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Kings shall come from you. Abraham was chosen to be the father of the nation Israel, but he is the father of many nations, actually. And the idea that kings come from him is that from him, the kings that come from him would rule under God's ultimate kingship. That God would be king, and that that the nations under his kingship would live in obedience to him. Well, what happened was, Abraham did become the father of many nations, but it was the father of Abraham, Isaac, or it was the nations that came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that becomes the the nation of Israel. And they are called to obedience to God because they are supposed to be following God, their king. Before they became a nation though, Israel had been enslaved. The people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that, their family had been enslaved in Egypt. And in Egypt, God would have to rescue them. Again, they were a hopeless people in a hopeless situation. And God would have to rescue them out of that situation. And when he did, He established himself to be greater than all of the other gods of Egypt and greater than the greatest nation in all the world. Egypt was the world power, but God was still king over all the nations. And Israel knew this. In Exodus 15, they declared, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So right after Israel was freed from Egypt, they understood that God was their king and that he would reign forever and ever and that God would use leaders like Moses to bring his kingship and his leadership and his rulership down to earth and rule the nation, and that God would then bless the whole world through Abraham. Listen to what it says. It says, and now if you will carefully listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you will be treasured, a treasured possession for me. Out of all peoples, for all the earth is mine, but you, you will belong to me as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God continued to use people like Moses, and then like Joshua and other judges like Othniel, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and then Samson. Samson, the last judge and the judge who we're reading about in the book of Samuel. Did I say Samson? I meant Samuel, Samuel. So we're, it's Samuel, God, Samuel is God's representative on earth. Samuel led the nation into peace and he led the nation into worship of God. So God is king, Samuel is judge over them, but Israel finally rejects this form of government. They're tired of it. They're tired of having a God that we can't see rule them. We want a king. We want a king just like all the other nations. We want a king who's strong and tall, who will lead us. And so God gives them what they want, and Saul becomes Israel's first king. And Saul is called to function in the same capacity as the judges, as God's representative. God is king, Saul is king of Israel, bringing God's rulership to them. He's to lead the people in military victory, in spiritual obedience under God, the true king. There's a commentator who who makes this interesting point. He says, the crucial difference between kingship in Israel and in neighboring lands lies in the fact that God endowed the king with his spirit to establish his rule on earth. God rules for his people, and his people benefit from his rule. He is their provider and their protector and the divine warrior. So the kings of Israel were supposed to be men who were characterized by a love of God, a love for God's word, a love for God's people, and a love for God's worship. And Saul did that in this first victory. But as we keep saying, you're gonna see soon, Saul is going to exalt himself as king. Say, no, no, God's not king. I will rule, and I'll do it my way. And there'll be great failure. And because of that failure, when he dies, God calls another man to king, and that is King David. So King David steps into the kingship. He's full of faults, and we know about his sins. The Bible is so honest about King David, too. And yet, he was a man who loved God. He did rule by loving God, by loving God's word, by loving God's people, and by loving his worship. He loved his word, he wrote many Psalms, He loved his worship in that he was going to build a temple. He didn't get to do it, his son did, but his heart was for Israel to have one place to worship God. All the future kings of Israel would be measured against the standard of David. The good kings would rule under God's kingship and according to the laws of God. And the evil kings would ignore God and they would rule by their own wisdom or their own lack of wisdom. All through that history of back and forth, the prophets spoke of a future Messiah. A future Messiah. The word Messiah simply means anointed, like the king is anointed. A future king was going to come a descendant of David, who would rule by the Holy Spirit, who would make decisions by God's wisdom, whose kingdom would be permanent and never end, whose kingdom would cover the whole earth and not just be isolated to one place. This king would put down all opposition and he would establish peace and righteousness in the world and he would be a shepherd to all those who would follow him. We have in the coming of Jesus the fulfillment of the prophecy for this Messiah, this anointed one. When Jesus was on earth, he proved his kingship. He proved that God was the ruler by healing, by feeding, by caring, by teaching, by authority over nature, authority over sickness, authority over over demons. And by his resurrection, he would prove that he had authority over the dark force of death itself. And Jesus has been crowned king of glory, and he is seated now at the right hand of God. He is the Messiah. Literally, he is the anointed king. That's what Jesus is and he will come back. Jesus' kingdom will be set upon the earth. He will be king of kings and lord of lords, meaning king over every other king, lord over every other lord. He will be seated on his throne, and all mankind will acknowledge him as king of kings. Those who love him will gladly, with joy, acknowledge him and follow him as king. Those who have been opposed to him will be forced to acknowledge the truth they have ignored all their lives, that he indeed is king of kings. And they will have to acknowledge him with reluctance. But they will, every, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow before him. So that brings us back to chapter 12. In chapter 12, we have the coronation service of Saul. And what we have here is Saul is confirmed as king, but also Israel's rejection of God is confirmed as part of the ceremony. What you're going to see as we look through this chapter quickly is God is so gracious. He is the king, he deserves all faithfulness of his subjects, but God is faithful even to those who are faithless. Listen to what happens. This starts in verse 13. This is Samuel speaking. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. Do you notice what Samuel's calling them to? He's not calling them to obedience to the king, the earthly king, he's calling them to obedience to the Lord. And if you obey the Lord, then all will go well for you and your king. He picks up, if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Let's jump to verse 19 now if you're following. Then all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Do you get what just happened there? Finally, I mean, Samuel's been saying this for for how many months? It's wrong to ask for a king. Don't ask for a king. You're rejecting God. Finally, they get it. We've added to all of our other sins this request for a king. Pray for us. They couldn't even pray for themselves. They didn't even have that kind of a relationship with him. Samuel, intercede on our behalf. So Samuel said to the people, do not fear. Wait, what? Do not fear? They just sinned. They just sinned against the great and glorious God who is perfect and holy. They have everything to fear. But Samuel said, do not fear. He says, do not fear. You have committed all this evil. You do, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside for then you will go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly both you and your king, will be swept away. Do you see how gracious God is? God is saying, yes, you've sinned, but you can still follow me without turning aside to things that are futile. Yes, you've sinned, but you can still fear me. Yes, you've sinned, but you can follow me with your whole heart. Yes, you've sinned, but I can forgive. God is so merciful. So, as I studied all this, I was so excited about all the good things I was learning about, the kingship and all this, and I come to the end of it and I say, how on earth does this apply to us? How do we make this happen in our lives? What what does this make sense to us? And I was reminded right away that like Adam, like the people of Babel, like Israel, and like King Saul, you and I have all sinned. We have all sinned. Now we try to deal with it in all kinds of ways. We hide it, we validate it, we ignore it, we pretend it's not there, we deny it, but it never goes away. It's always there. The only way that we can deal with sin is to confess it to a merciful God. This is what Israel finally did. Lord, we've added to all of our other sins the sin of asking for a king. They knew they could come to God. The reason why they could is because they could appeal to him only because he's merciful. If God wasn't merciful, if God was just judgment, nobody would wanna come to him to confess sin against him, no way. I'm in danger, and yes, I'm in danger, but he is merciful. God is a God of mercy. So, regardless of who you are, you know, regardless of whether you're a close follower of Jesus Christ, or whether you don't, you don't even know, who is this Jesus, what is this guy talking about up here? Regardless of who you are, you know you have sin in your heart. You know it. The only option that we have to really adequately deal with sin to go to our merciful God. There's no other way. Regardless of who you are, confession to our king is the only way. And when we confess, we will be met with love. We will be met with forgiveness. Amen. If we confess our sins, the Bible says, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, we're pretty hard on the Israelites sometimes, aren't we? You know, we, we kinda kind of get down on them because they were so rebellious and they had God right there and they were ignoring him. They, the pillar of fire, how could they sin against this God? But I'm just so reminded of my own failures. You know, I, I'm reminded of myself before I was a believer, before I confessed my sins to God, and said, yeah, I am a sinner, I need a savior. Before then, I totally ruled my own life. Even, I mean, I was a teenager, but I knew I was gonna do what I wanted to do. Nobody was gonna tell me what to do, especially not God. And I knew there was a God, but he was not gonna do anything in my life. I was king, and I wasn't giving up that throne. So then I become a believer, Right? and I say, Lord, I am a sinner, I need a savior, and I put my faith completely in you, rule my life, you be king. And yet, oh man, I, on a daily basis, my old self comes up and says, I still want that throne. I want it back, I'm gonna take that throne. I wanna, be, get Jesus, get off of there, I wanna rule myself. It's still there, even though I've been following the Lord for so long. I'm sure you have experienced that same thing. And sometimes it's stronger than others, right? Right, we know that. But in all of that, God is so merciful to us. Listen to what he says. He says to us, do not turn aside from following the Lord and go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver. Oh, we're so easily distracted, aren't we? You know, we chase after things that really don't profit us, that really can't deliver. Who just delivered the Jabesh Gileadites? The Lord, right? Said the Lord, Samuel made it clear. I didn't do it. The Lord delivered them. But we chase after things that cannot deliver. So is your pursuit of success really going to deliver for you? Is it? is your pursuit of that relationship really going to prosper you is your your dependency on your drug of choice whether that's that's a chemical or a behavior an activity or control or anger whatever your drug is is it really delivering for you is it really profiting your life How about your compromised morality? Is it really meeting the needs of your heart? Church, if God is going to use us, we cannot be chasing futile and empty things. And when we do chase futile and empty and worthless things, it's no different than the Israelites worshiping a wooden God who can't see, hear, or do anything for them. No different at all. God is so merciful, he says, yes, you have sinned, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You know, the world is full of half-hearted Christians. If the Lord is going to do anything with me or with you, it's not because we're half-hearted. If he's gonna do anything with faith, community, church, in this community or in the world, it's not because we're sitting here half-heartedly following him. The Lord is after your heart, your whole heart. All of it every part of your heart. And it's funny to me that we think we can hold back on God. God is omniscient. He knows all. Well, there's no thing I can hide from the Lord. Lord, I'm too ashamed of this in my heart. I can't give it to you. What? He died for it. He died for it. Why would I hold it back from him? He is the only one who can adequately deal with our heart. And I have a question for you. If, if you are only serving the Lord half-heartedly, who or what has the other half? And is that other half actually safe with them? It's not. God's the only one we can trust with our whole heart. So Christian, don't hold back. Don't hold back your your heart, give it to the Lord, let him have all of it. You can trust him with it. Uh, He goes on with another another merciful, yes, you have sinned, but only fear the Lord. Last week, Pastor John D. gave a sermon about fear, about how we we tend to fear things and we forget about fearing God. And it's just so appropriate because there are so many things we can fear. But if we understand God's sovereignty and his power and his love and his care for us, we wouldn't have to be afraid of anything. Think about it. If God is sovereign, which means he, he oversees all things that happen, he knows and directs all. If he's sovereign, do we really have to be afraid of anything that would come into our life? If he is omnipotent and all-powerful, do we have to be afraid of any power or any person or any force that would come against us? No, he's more powerful than that. We can trust in him. If God is all loving and all caring, can we really rest in him? Listen to what the Bible says about this. It says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us, how will he not also give us all things? Do you get that? If God gave up his son, well, isn't he gonna give us everything else? And you know, we used to sing this song back in the 70s. Uh, Yeah, how did that song go anyway? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. You know, that's not just a cute song from the 70s. It's the word of God, and it's a passionate call to us. We sing it kind of meaninglessly, but it's a passionate call. It's saying, seek God first, nothing else. God, all these other things. If if he who gave his own son died for you, Won't he give you all those other things? Yeah, so seek his kingdom first and all of these other things will be added. It's a call, a passionate call to follow him with your whole heart. And then finally he says, yes, you've sinned, but consider what great things he has done for you how important it is for us to rehearse the great things of God. That's why I went through that timeline of kingship, just rehearsing the great things of God. That's why every Sunday morning we're up here and we preach the word of God. We rehearse, we consider the great things of God because we need those constant reminders. You know, we started out talking about the Jabesh Gileadites, right? This this helpless, hopeless people. But in our sin, aren't we the same way? Helpless and hopeless. Our sin is always there. It's always present, accusing, pulling us down, telling us we're unworthy, shaming us, and we can't do anything about it. You can read all the self-help books you want. None of them will deal with your sin, none of them. And worst of all, that self, that sin stands between us and God. And God right now sees your situation and he says, though you have sinned, though you have rejected me as king, I love you, I've died for you, come to me and confess and you will be met with everything you need in your life and all these other things will be added to you because he gave his only son for you and for me. He sent his son Jesus, king of kings, who showed how great his love is for us by giving himself up, a king dying for his people. You get that? A king dying for his people. And he died to wash us and to make a way for us to join his glorious kingdom. You see, either you're in his kingdom or you're not. There's only two places you can be in this world part of God's kingdom that we enter by faith in the, Son of Je- in the Son of God, Jesus Christ who died in our sin, or else you're not a part of his kingdom because you haven't put your faith in that. Oh, this king, this king of kings, what a good king. What a good king, oh, the goodness of God. We're gonna sing it one more time. Let's stand together.
0: Your goodness is running after. It's running after me. Your goodness is running after. It's running.
1: I wanna speak a blessing over you that comes from 1 Timothy. So this is the Apostle Paul, and it really ties in beautifully with this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ that you keep the command without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to him be glory and honor and eternal dominion.